Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Chapter 18 Before the end of the week, the manager found himself in relations with the family once more. A telegram from Milan announced that Mr. Francis Westwick would arrive in Venice on the next day and would be obliged if number 14 on the first floor could be reserved for him in the event of its being vacant at the time. The manager paused to consider before he issued his directions. The renumbered room had been last let to a French gentleman. It would be occupied on the day of Mr. Francis Westwick's arrival, but it would be empty again on the day after. Would it be well to reserve the room for the special occupation of Mr. Francis? And when he had passed the night unsuspiciously and comfortably in number 13A, to ask him, in the presence of witnesses, how he liked his bedchamber... In this case, if the reputation of the room happened to be called in question again, the answer would vindicate it on the evidence of a member of the very family which had first given number 14 a bad name. After a little reflection, the manager decided on trying the experiment and directed that 13A should be reserved accordingly. On the next day, Francis Westwick arrived in excellent spirits. He had signed agreements with the most popular dancer in Italy. He had transferred the charge of Mrs. Norbury to his brother Henry, who had joined him in Milan, and he was now at full liberty to amuse himself by testing, in every possible way, the extraordinary influence exercised over his relatives by the new hotel. When his brother and sister first told him what their experience had been, he instantly declared that he would go to Venice in the interest of his theater. The circumstances related to him contained invaluable hints for a ghost drama. The title occurred to him in the railway. The Haunted Hotel. Post that in red letters six feet high on a black ground all over London, and trust the excitable public to crowd into the theater. Received with the politest attention by the manager, Francis met with a disappointment on entering the hotel. Some mistake, sir, no such room on the first floor as number 14. The room bearing that number is on the second floor and has been occupied by me from the day when the hotel opened. Perhaps you meant number 13A on the first floor. It will be at your service tomorrow, a charming room. In the meantime, we will do our best we can for you tonight. A man who is the successful manager of a theater is probably the last man in the civilized universe who is capable of being impressed with favorable opinions of his fellow creatures. Francis privately set the manager down as a humbug, and the story about the numbering of the rooms as a lie. On the day of his arrival, he dined by himself in the restaurant before the dinner hour for the express purpose of questioning the waiter without being overheard by anybody. The answer led him to the conclusion that 13A 
occupied the situation in the hotel which had been described by his brother and sister as the situation of fourteen. He asked next for the visitor's list, and found that the French gentleman who then occupied 13A was the proprietor of a theatre in Paris, personally well known to him. Was the gentleman then in the hotel? He had gone out, but would certainly return for the dinner hour. When the public dinner was over, Francis entered the room and was welcomed by his Parisian colleague, literally with open arms. "'Come and have a cigar in my room,' said the friendly Frenchman. "'I want to hear whether you have really engaged that woman at Milan or not.' In this easy way, Francis found his opportunity of comparing the interior of the room with the description which he had heard of it at Milan. Arriving at the door, the Frenchman bethought himself of his traveling companion. "'My scene-painter is here with me,' he said, "'on the lookout for materials.' "'an excellent fellow, who will take it as a kindness "'if we ask him to join us. "'I'll tell the porter to send him up when he comes in.' "'He handed the key of his room to Francis. "'I'll be back in a minute. "'It's at the end of the corridor, 13A.' "'Francis entered the room alone. "'There were the decorations on the walls and the ceiling, "'exactly as they had been described to him. "'He had just time to perceive this at a glance,' before his attention was diverted to himself and his own sensations by a grotesquely disagreeable occurrence which took him completely by surprise. He became conscious of a mysteriously offensive odor in the room, entirely new in his experience of revolting smells. It was composed, if such a thing could be, of two mingling exhalations, which were separately discoverable exhalations nevertheless, this strange blending of odors consisted of something faintly and unpleasantly aromatic, mixed with another underlying smell, so unutterably sickening that he threw open the window and put his head out into the fresh air, unable to endure the horribly infected atmosphere for a moment longer. The French proprietor joined his English friend with his cigar already lit. He started back in dismay at a sight terrible to his countrymen in general, "'the sight of an open window. "'You English people are perfectly mad "'on the subject of fresh air,' he exclaimed. "'We shall catch our deaths of cold.' "'Francis turned and looked at him in astonishment. "'Are you really not aware of the smell there in this room?' he asked. "'Smell?' repeated his brother-manager. "'I smell my own good cigar. "'Try one yourself, and for heaven's sake, shut the window.' "'Francis declined the cigar by a sign.' "'Forgive me,' he said. "'I will leave you to close the window. "'I feel faint and giddy. "'I'd better go out.' "'He put his handkerchief over his nose and mouth "'and crossed the room to the door. "'The Frenchman followed the movements of Francis "'in such a state of bewilderment "'that he actually forgot to seize the opportunity "'of shutting out the fresh air. "'Is it so nasty as that?' he asked, "'with a broad stare of amazement. "'Horrible,' Francis muttered behind his handkerchief. I never smelt anything like it in my life. There was a knock at the door. The scene painter appeared. His employer instantly asked him if he smelt anything. I smell your cigar. Delicious. Give me one directly. Wait a minute. Besides my cigar, do you smell anything else? Vile, abominable, overpowering, indescribable, never, never, never smelt before. 
the scene-painter appeared to be puzzled by the vehement energy of the language addressed to him. "'The room is as fresh and sweet as a room can be,' he answered. As he spoke, he looked back with astonishment at Francis Westwick, standing outside in the corridor and eyeing the interior of the bedchamber with an expression of undisguised disgust. The Parisian director approached his English colleague and looked at him with grave and anxious scrutiny. "'You see, my friend, here are two of us with as good noses as yours who smell nothing. If you want evidence for more noses, look there,' he pointed to two little English girls at play in the corridor. "'The door of my room is wide open, and you know how fast a smell can travel. Now listen, while I appeal to these innocent noses in the language of their own dismal land.' "'My little loves, do you sniff a nasty smell here, huh?' "'The children burst out laughing and answered emphatically, "'No. "'My good Westwick,' the Frenchman resumed in his own language, "'the conclusion is surely plain. "'There is something wrong, very wrong, with your own nose. "'I recommend you to see a medical man.' "'Having given that advice, he returned to his room,' and shut out the horrid fresh air with a loud exclamation of relief. Francis left the hotel by the lanes that led to the square of St. Mark. The night breeze soon revived him. He was able to light a cigar and to think quietly over what had happened. Chapter 19 Avoiding the crowd under the colonnades, Francis walked slowly up and down the noble open space of the square, "'bathed in the light of the rising moon. "'Without being aware of it himself, "'he was a thorough materialist. "'The strange effect produced on him by the room, "'following on the other strange effects, "'produced on the other relatives of his dead brother, "'exercised no perplexing influence "'over the mind of this sensible man. "'Perhaps,' he reflected, "'my temperament is more imaginative "'than I supposed it to be.' "'and this is a trick played on me by my own fancy. "'Or perhaps my friend is right. "'Something is physically amiss with me. "'I don't feel ill, certainly, "'but that is no safe criterion sometimes. "'I am not going to sleep in that abominable room tonight. "'I can well wait till tomorrow "'to decide whether I shall speak to a doctor or not. "'In the meantime, the hotel doesn't seem likely to supply me "'with the subject of a piece.' A terrible smell from an invisible ghost is a perfectly new idea, but it has one drawback. If I realize it on the stage, I shall drive the audience out of the theater. As his strong common sense arrived at this facetious conclusion, he became aware of a lady, dressed entirely in black, who was observing him with marked attention. "'Am I right in supposing you to be Mr. Francis Westwick?' the lady asked, at the moment when he looked at her. "'That is my name, madam. May I inquire to whom I have the honor of speaking?' "'We have only met once,' she answered, a little evasively. "'When your late brother introduced me to the members of his family, "'I wonder if you have quite forgotten my big black eyes and my hideous complexion.' She lifted her veil as she spoke and turned so that the moonlight rested on her face. Francis recognized at a glance the woman of all others whom he most cordially disliked, the widow of his dead brother, the First Lord Mountberry. He frowned as he looked at her. 
his experience on the stage, gathered at innumerable rehearsals with actresses who had sorely tried his temper, had accustomed him to speak roughly to women who were distasteful to him. "'I remember you,' he said. "'I thought you were in America.' She took no notice of his ungracious tone and manner. She simply stopped him when he lifted his hat and turned to leave her. "'Let me walk with you for a few minutes,' she quietly replied. "'I have something to say to you.' He showed her his cigar. "'I am smoking,' he said. "'I don't mind smoking.' After that, there was nothing to be done, short of downright brutality, but to yield. He did it with the worst possible grace." "'Well,' he resumed, "'what do you want of me?' "'You shall hear directly, Mr. Westwick. "'Let me first tell you what my position is. "'I am alone in the world. "'To the loss of my husband has now been added another bereavement, "'the loss of my companion in America, my brother, Baron Rivar. "'The reputation of the Baron and the doubt "'which scandal had thrown on his assumed relationship to the Countess "'were well known to Francis.' "'Shot in a gambling saloon?' he asked brutally. "'The question is a perfectly natural one on your part,' she said, "'with the impenetrably ironical manner "'which she could assume on certain occasions. "'As a native of horse-racing England, "'you belong to a nation of gamblers. "'My brother died no extraordinary death, Mr. Westwick. "'He sank, with many other unfortunate people, "'under a fever prevalent in a western city "'which we happened to visit.' The calamity of his loss made the United States unendurable to me. I left by the first steamer that sailed from New York, a French vessel. I continued my lonely journey to the south of France, and then I went on to Venice. "'What does all this matter to me?' Francis thought to himself. She paused, evidently expecting him to say something. "'So you have come to Venice,' he said carelessly. "'Why?' "'Because I couldn't help it,' she answered. "'Francis looked at her with cynical curiosity. "'That sounds odd,' he remarked. "'Why couldn't you help it?' "'Women are accustomed to act on impulse,' she explained. "'Suppose we say that an impulse has directed my journey, "'and yet this is the last place in the world "'that I wish to find myself in. "'Associations that I detest are connected with it in my mind.' If I had a will of my own, I would never see it again. I hate Venice. As you see, however, I am here. When did you meet with such an unreasonable woman before? Never, I am sure. She stopped, eyed him for a moment, and suddenly altered her tone. When is Miss Agnes Lockwood expected to be in Venice? she asked. It was not easy to throw Francis off his balance, but that extraordinary question did it. "'How the devil did you know that Miss Lockwood was coming to Venice?' he exclaimed. She laughed, a bitter, mocking laugh. "'Say I guessed it.' Something in her tone, or perhaps something in the audacious defiance of her eyes as they rested on him, roused the quick temper that was in Francis Westwick. "'Lady Mountberry,' he began. "'Stop there,' she interposed. "'Your brother Stephen's wife calls herself Lady Mountberry now. "'I share my title with no woman. "'Call me by my name before I committed "'the fatal mistake of marrying your brother. "'Address me, if you please, as Countess Nerona.' "'Countess Nerona,' Francis resumed, 
"'If your object in claiming my acquaintance is to mystify me, "'you have come to the wrong man. "'Speak plainly, or permit me to wish you good evening. "'If your object is to keep Miss Lockwood's arrival in Venice a secret,' she retorted, "'speak plainly, Mr. Westwick, on your side, and say so. "'Her intention was evidently to irritate him, and she succeeded. "'Nonsense,' he broke out petulantly. "'My brother's travelling arrangements are secrets to nobody.' "'He brings Miss Lockwood here with Lady Mountberry and the children. "'As you seem so well informed, perhaps you know why she is coming to Venice.' "'The Countess had suddenly become grave and thoughtful. "'She made no reply. "'The two strangely associated companions, "'having reached one extremity of the square, "'were now standing before the Church of St. Mark. "'The moonlight was bright enough to show the architecture "'of the Grand Cathedral in its wonderful variety of detail.' Even the pigeons of St. Mark were visible in darkly close-packed rows, roosting in the archways of the great entrance doors. "'I never saw the old church look so beautiful by moonlight,' the countess said quietly, speaking not to Francis but to herself. "'Good-bye, St. Mark's by moonlight. I shall not see you again.' She turned away from the church and saw Francis listening to her with wondering looks. "'No,' she resumed, placidly picking up the lost thread of the conversation. "'I don't know why Miss Lockwood is coming here. "'I only know that we are to meet in Venice.' "'By previous appointment?' "'By destiny,' she answered, with her head on her breast and her eyes on the ground. "'Francis burst out laughing. "'Or if you like it better,' she instantly resumed, "'by what fools call chance.' Francis answered easily, out of the depths of his strong common sense. "'Chance seems to be taking a queer way of bringing the meeting about,' he said. "'We have all arranged to meet at the Palace Hotel. How is it that your name is not on the visitor's list? Destiny ought to have brought you to the Palace Hotel, too.' She abruptly pulled down her veil. "'Destiny may do that yet,' she said. The Palace Hotel, she repeated, speaking once more to herself. The old hell transformed into the new purgatory. The place itself. Jesus, Maria, the place itself. She paused and laid her hand on her companion's arm. Perhaps Miss Lockwood is not going there with the rest of you, she burst out with sudden eagerness. Are you positively sure she will be at the hotel? Positively. "'Haven't I told you that Miss Lockwood travels with Lord and Lady Mountberry? "'And don't you know that she is a member of the family? "'You will have to move, Countess, to our hotel.' "'She was perfectly impenetrable to the bantering tone in which he spoke. "'Yes,' she said faintly, "'I shall have to move to your hotel.' "'Her hand was still on his arm. "'He could feel her shivering from head to foot while she spoke. "'Heartily, as he disliked and distrusted her, the common instinct of humanity obliged him to ask if she felt cold. Yes, she said, cold and faint. Cold and faint, Countess, on such a night as this. The night has nothing to do with it, Mr. Westwick. How do you suppose the criminal feels on the scaffold while the hangman is putting the rope around his neck? Cold and faint, too, I should think. Excuse my grim fancy. You see, destiny has got the rope round my neck, and I feel it. 
she looked about her. They were at that moment close to the famous café known as Florian's. "'Take me in there,' she said. "'I must have something to revive me. "'You had better not hesitate. "'You are interested in reviving me. "'I have not said what I wanted to say to you yet. "'It's business, and it's connected with your theater. "'Wondering inwardly what she could possibly want with his theater, "'Francis reluctantly yielded to the necessities of the situation "'and took her into the café. "'He found a quiet corner in which they could take their places "'without attracting notice.' "'What will you have?' he inquired resignedly. "'She gave her own orders to the waiter "'without troubling him to speak for her. "'Maraschino and a pot of tea.' "'The waiter stared. "'Francis stared. "'The tea was a novelty "'in connection with Maraschino to both of them. "'Careless, whether she surprised them or not, "'she instructed the waiter, "'when her directions had been complied with, "'to pour a large wine-glass full of the liqueur "'into a tumbler,' "'and to fill it up from the teapot. "'I can't do it for myself,' she remarked. "'My hand trembles so. "'She drank the strange mixture eagerly, hot as it was. "'Maraschino punch. "'Will you taste some of it?' she said. "'I inherit the discovery of this drink. "'When your English Queen Caroline was on the continent, "'my mother was attached to her court. "'That much-injured royal person invented, "'in her happier hours, maraschino punch.' Fondly attached to her gracious mistress, my mother shared her tastes, and I, in my turn, learned from my mother. Now, Mr. Westwick, suppose I tell you what my business is. You are a manager of a theatre. Do you want a new play? I always want a new play, provided it's a good one. And you pay if it's a good one. I pay liberally, in my own interests. If I write the play, will you read it? Francis hesitated. "'What has put writing a play into your head?' he asked. "'Mere accident,' she answered. "'I had once occasion to tell my late brother of a visit "'which I paid to Miss Lockwood when I was last in England. "'He took no interest at what happened at the interview, "'but something struck him in my way of relating it. "'He said, "'You describe what passed between you and the lady "'with the point and contrast of a good stage dialogue. "'You have the dramatic instinct,' "'Try if you can write a play. "'You might make money. "'That put it into my head.' "'Those last words seemed to startle Francis. "'Surely you don't want money,' he exclaimed. "'I always want money. "'My tastes are expensive. "'I have nothing but my poor little four hundred a year, "'and the wreck that is left of the other money, "'about two hundred pounds in circular notes. "'No more.' Francis knew that she was referring to the ten thousand pounds paid by the insurance offices. "'All those thousands gone already?' he exclaimed. She blew a little puff of air over her fingers. "'Gone like that,' she answered coolly. "'Baron Rivar?' She looked at him with a flash of anger in her hard black eyes. "'My affairs are my own secret, Mr. Westwick. I have made you a proposal, and you have not answered me yet.' Don't say no without thinking first. Remember what a life mine has been. I have seen more of the world than most people, playwrights included. I have had strange adventures. I have heard remarkable stories. I have observed. I have remembered. Are there no materials here in my head for writing a play if the opportunity is granted to me? She waited a moment and suddenly repeated her strange question about Agnes. When is Miss Lockwood expected to be in Venice? 
"'What has that to do with your new play, Countess?' "'The Countess appeared to feel some difficulty "'in giving that question its fit reply. "'She mixed another tumbler full of maraschino punch "'and drank one good half of it before she spoke again. "'It has everything to do with my new play,' was all she said. "'Answer me,' Francis answered her. "'Miss Lockwood may be here in a week, "'or for all I know to the contrary, sooner than that. "'Very well. "'If I am a living woman and a free woman in a week's time, "'or if I am in possession of my senses in a week's time, "'don't interrupt me, I know what I am talking about, "'I shall have a sketch or outline of my play ready "'as a specimen of what I can do. "'Once again, will you read it?' "'I will certainly read it, but, Countess, I don't understand.' "'She held up her hand for silence "'and finished the second tumbler of maraschino punch. "'I am a living enigma, "'and you want to know the right reading of me,' she said. "'Here is the reading, as your English phrase goes, in a nutshell. "'There is a foolish idea in the minds of many persons "'that the natives of the warm climates are imaginative people. "'There never was a greater mistake.' You will find no such unimaginative people anywhere as you will find in Italy, Spain, Greece, and the other southern countries. To anything fanciful, to anything spiritual, their minds are deaf and blind by nature. Now and then, in the course of centuries, a great genius springs up among them, and he is the exception which proves the rule. Now see, I, though I am no genius, I am in my little way, as I suppose, an exception too. To my sorrow, I have some of that imagination which is so common among the English and the Germans, so rare among the Italians, the Spaniards, and the rest of them. And what is the result? I think it has become a disease in me. I am filled with presentiments which make this wicked life of mine one long terror to me. It doesn't matter just now what they are. Enough that they absolutely govern me. They drive me over land and sea at their own horrible will— they are in me and torturing me at this moment. Why don't I resist them? Ha, huh. but I do resist them. I am trying, with the help of the good punch, to resist them now. At intervals I cultivate the difficult virtue of common sense. Sometimes sound sense makes a hopeful woman of me. At one time I had the hope that what seemed reality to me was only mad delusion. After all, I even asked the question of an English doctor— at other times, other sensible doubts of myself beset me. Never mind dwelling on them now. It always ends in the old terrors and superstitions taking possession of me again. In a week's time I shall know whether destiny does indeed decide my future for me, or whether I decide it for myself. In the last case, my resolution is to absorb this self-tormenting fancy of mine in the occupation that I have told you of already." "'Do you understand me a little better now? "'And our business being settled, dear Mr. Westwick, "'shall we get out of this hot room "'into the nice cool air again?' "'They rose to leave the café. "'Francis privately concluded "'that the maraschino punch "'offered the only discoverable explanation "'of what the Countess had said to him. "'Phoebe Reads a Mystery "'is recorded in the studios "'of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.'